Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You're Reading with TBQ. Today's episode will go alongside the blog post for December 16th. As always, in that post, I will link to all the books, the quotes, and anything else that I mention. You can find that entry on tbqsbookpalace.com. While you're at it, feel free to find me on social media as well. For Twitter, that is the underscore book underscore queen. I'm listed under the same name for my Goodreads. Instagram is Danielle underscore TBQ. And if Tumblr is your thing, you've got two options. My safe for work Tumblr is the-book-queen.tumblr.com, while my completely not safe for work, no seriously, I warned you, this is just porn here, Tumblr is tbqafterdark.tumblr.com. Pick your social media poison and come join the fun. So you know how I was going on and on about my coffee recipe, if you will, last week? I think I cursed myself by doing so, because when I went to the store this week, my vanilla caramel creamer was all out, and I had to buy something else, and now my life is ruined. Listen, okay, just let me be dramatic about my coffee creamer, okay? Because fuck you, 2017, I'm going to take a minute and be dramatic here. An update, in case you are interested. Peanut Butter Blossom cookies were made this week, and most of them also eaten this week. The leftover Hershey Kisses were devoured as well. I have no idea who could have done that. Nope, no idea at all. I didn't get to the Christmas crack, but I'll definitely do that next week and probably make another batch of the cookies because really, enough is never enough. Let's start out with the Romance Landia slash Twitter chats, shall we? A bit of a follow-up to last week's total rant about that Kristen Higgins book. First of all, it's been pointed out by other traditionally published authors that she may very well have had nothing to do with the writing or approving of that original blurb. Fine, I'll believe that since so many authors were saying that they don't ever see their blurbs usually until it's out and they may have little to no say in changing it if there's an issue. So on that part, I will, I will say okay. That part of her statement was probably, in fact, correct. But the blurb was still there in all its shitty glory, and it came from somewhere. So at the very least, Berkeley still has some explaining to do. In case you were still thinking that the blurb was indeed wrong, like she claims, and the book couldn't possibly be that bad, oh, just you wait. One of the vocal authors who spoke out against the original blurb, Jen Petra Roy, she's not a romance author, by the way, but I will link to her Twitter and whatnot in the blog post. She was offered an arc of it and decided she'd give it a chance and, and try it out and see if it did, in fact, match up to the blurb, right? So she started tweeting lines from the arc, and within just a few pages, it was clear it was just as fatphobic and offensive as the original blurb promised us. Here's an example of a line from the book. God, the mountains, the acres of flesh. When, how had she become so huge? Why hadn't we known Emerson was so far gone? Emerson, if you recall, is the fat friend that dies because of her weight. There was also, just within those first few pages, the stereotypical fat people only think about food all the time talk, and it was just... No, it was a hot mess, and she, um, this author, Jen Petra Roy, she stopped only after only a few pages because she says it was just that bad and harmful and she couldn't keep going, which, understandable because, um, yes, it, it is harmful. But sure, 
Tell me again about how Higgins can do no wrong and this book was just going to be body positive and encouraging. I'm still not buying that bullshit. Not at all. The proof is right here. Once again, if you wish to read the book still, for whatever reason, go on ahead. I would never stop you from reading something. Anything. I'm not going to control what you read. But I sure as hell will not be touching it. And I talk about this stuff to let you know why maybe you may not want to touch it. I just offer up the information. It's up to you guys to go from there. But I'm not touching this. Still not touching this. And the amount of her fans who are claiming that there's nothing wrong with the book, that she can do no wrong, that we're taking offense to stuff that isn't offensive, or the ones that have said, well, I had a weight problem in the years past and I'm not offended by this book. Well, good for you. That doesn't mean that the hundreds of others speaking out and saying they're deeply offended and hurt by this book uh, doesn't mean that their reactions are invalid just because you have no issue with it. There's a number of people already who says, you know what, just reading about this book has already started to trigger some of their eating disorders again, or it has brought back, you know, painful memories and um, depression and stuff like that that is centered around their own body image that they have been, you know, having to, to battle with. We all have to do that because society is constantly telling us that our body is not good enough. So, uh, you know, even when we're living, trying to live body positive, the world is telling us otherwise, and it is that battle that we all have to rage within ourselves. But no book should be causing harm to people. You know, the worst part here might be the fact that the blurb was changed, because at least the original blurb was honest in how shitty it is and how much of a pile of shit it is, whereas this new blurb is this sugar-coated no, no, everything's fine here. Come on in. This is going to be a great book. It's going to be happy and body positive and encouraging and and that'll be fine. And no, it's not because then you start reading it and it's not that. I'd almost prefer the honest advertising of the original blurb to this fake ass pseudo cover up blurb because this one is going to cause even more harm for people who are just reading this new blurb and thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be fine and start reading it, and it's not fine, and it could be triggering some, and it has been triggering some, and um, that's that's not what you want a book to do. I also had a bit of fun with some cover snark earlier this week on Twitter, including a couple's cookbook where it looks like they're trying to fuck each other's fingers while holding a knife, except for I would never hold a knife that way, and that is just an accident waiting to happen. It's just that cover is a hot mess. Now, I know many of you already follow me on Twitter, so you probably saw this already, but not everyone follows my awesomeness there. FYI, if you do not, you're seriously missing out. I'm just saying. Uh, plus, I do tend to post and retweet a shit ton of things every single day, so even if you do follow me, things can get lost in the shuffle. So I'll leave a link to that cover snark thread. And Jen has done a few cover snark tweets like that as well, so I'll try to find and link to some of those, too. I'm trying to think of anything else notable this week, and I'm drawing a blank. I mean, notable that is Romance Landia-related, at least. Because let's be honest, much of this week was spent watching Alabama, thank fucking God for that flame of hope, and then getting kicked in the nuts again by the Republicanibles. Oh, sorry, Republicans. Total slip of the tongue there, I do apologize. Uh, who decided to take big corporate money over the constituents' voices and repealed net neutrality, 
Which, yeah, I'm trying really hard not to think about that because it could very well mean the end of a lot of what I do for the blog and for this podcast. We'll deal with that when the time comes. Uh, but basically, fuck you 2017. Fuck you. That random derailment brought to you by, oh, yeah, I am not one of those bloggers who decides to stay out of politics and pretends that the world isn't burning by means of a flaming shitball constantly pouring down. Uh, I'm just not, I'm just not that way. With the exception of this little side note just now, I won't have politics taking over the blog or the podcast, but I also won't shut up and act like I have no opinion on the shit going on. So if my being vocal, or my views in particular, bother you, I'm sorry to see you go, but there's the exit. Okay, enough of that. Let's get back on track here. Moving on to the blog recap for the week. First, Pat reviewed Sunset Bay Sanctuary by Roxanne Snowpake, giving it four stars. She says a slow, sensual love story grows between Aiden and Haley, and it's a lovely read. Next, Jen's review for Seared by Sulakai Snyder went up. Hold on, 99.9% .9 sure that I just butchered her name, and I deeply apologize. My white-ass roots are showing. I tried my best. This book came out Tuesday, and Jen gave it a solid five stars, making it a royal pick for December. She admits that at first she wasn't sure if this book would work for her, but not to worry, this book is freaking great, and all of my doubts were quickly swept away by this amazing writer and her utterly fantastic characters. Oh, and it's super hot. Sold. There were also the usual posts up this week, lusting for covers on Sunday, new releases on Tuesday, and daily book deals Monday through Saturday, with a recap of the deals every Sunday. I apologize in advance to your one-click finger, while also encouraging you to go treat yourself to a new book. Or ten. Hey, I won't tell. Next week, Jen has a four-and-a-half-star review going up for an upcoming romantic suspense, Pat has a five-star review going up for a new contemporary release, and there will be another guest post from Anita Sunday to celebrate her latest MM release. Be sure to check back for all the details. And just as a quick reminder, the December giveaway will go up on the 28th and runs through the 31st. I'm telling you about it now because... Uh, where the giveaways always go up on a Thursday and end Sunday night, and these podcasts come out on a Saturday, it's not exactly giving you much time if I'm telling you about it the day before it's going to end. And that's, of course, assuming that you listen to the podcast the day it comes out, and I know not everyone does. So I'm giving you a heads up to mark your calendar so that you can check back on the 28th to enter this month's giveaway. Good luck. As to my reading week, I managed to finish four books, ranging from a really disappointing one, though it wasn't rage-inducing at least, so there's that, right, uh, to a few really good ones. So without further ado, let's get into the book discussions. First up, I finished Hidden Truths by Megan Erickson. This is a sexy, quick romantic suspense novella, and it's told in dual first POV. Now, originally, this was a weekly serial for Megan's newsletter subscribers, but after finishing it, she expanded the ending, put it through editing and whatnot, and now has it up as a novella to buy. I started out by reading the first few chapters in my email, but to be honest, I'm not a fan of serials, and that combined with the fact that I hate reading 
long passages of text like that on my computer screen, and I just stopped reading pretty early on, though it was not because of the story. Promise, it was not. Since I knew she was going to create a novella eventually, I just, you know, figured I'd bid my time and wait for it, and I must say the wait was worth it, as I very much enjoyed this one, giving it four stars. Wow, that was a really long intro for a book, wasn't it? But I guess I had to kind of explain to you guys that this was, in a way, previously released, but it was free, and now, you know, you have to pay for it. But anyway. Tara is in this small town waiting for her brother to come back. There's some secrets to his past, criminal secrets, that is, and he took off to try and get away from them all, and in a way to protect her. She's convinced he'll be back eventually, right? After all, he left something in a safe deposit box in this town. Lance has his own criminal past, secrets, and pain. Uh, he's in town as a way to get his revenge against his brother's killer. I mean, you probably already know the plot twist there, don't you? But in case you don't, you know, I'm not going to spoil it any further. My mouth is zipped from here on out. So these two meet at the bar, and their instant attraction sparks. She wants him, he wants her, and after each of them blatantly makes that known, uh, they head back to his place to fuck the night away. Which they do. And it's damn hot because Erickson writes great, dirty, dirty scenes. Their morning after involves a parting finger-bang orgasm for her and a few non-sexual fireworks as she goes after him for being an ass in order to make her to leave. You know, both of them don't want commitment. They don't want to let anyone in. They've both got their secrets. It was supposed to be a one-and-done. And he decides to be a bit of an ass that morning to get her out the door, but... um she doesn't take his shit, and she fires back at him. She does leave, but, of course, one night isn't going to be enough for them, and soon it becomes clear that Tara isn't safe and their past have caught up with them, and maybe intertwined as well. I'm sorry, was that also a spoiler? <laughs> sorry. As I said, this is a quick read. Uh, for a novella, it's pretty good. Yes, the mad dash to wrap everything up by the end left me wanting more, that's usually the case, especially with novellas, but it was still well done and entertaining and hot, as mentioned before. The epilogue is a bit over-the-top sweet in that they're perfectly adorable together after only knowing each other a few months, but I'm not exactly mad at this either. The good news is Erickson already has plans to write the story for Tara's brother, though it'll be another email serial that she does first, so I'll just wait until it's done and up for purchase again. In the meantime, I think I need to bump up my arc of her next book, which is Zero Hour, a romantic suspense she's doing with Love Swept? No, that found sounds wrong forever. I'm horrible at checking my facts before I do this. Um, It's a new romantic suspense series that she's starting with some publisher. <laughs> I'm horrible. I'll let you guys know for the links and that to it, of course, in the blog post. But anyway, uh, it comes out in January, and I don't think I can hold off reading it any longer. I've mentioned before how I always feel like I've got to wait to read ARCs until closer to release date, especially where I like to share so many quotes online, on Twitter and that. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'm just like, eh, fuck it. I really need to read this book. And I'm sorry if you guys can't, you know, run out and grab it yet. But that's kind of what my... My job here is, is to read these arcs ahead of time and let you guys know whether you should go in one-click it, right? I volunteers tribute to let you know if you ought to one-click zero hour, so maybe I'll start that next week. Probably next week. I've got some other things to do this week, but I'll probably start that next week, so stay tuned.
Next, I finished up the audiobook I mentioned last week, Kiss of Steel by Beck McMaster, narrated by Allison Larkin. While I do have a few things to say about this one and the narration as well, I'm still giving this one a solid four stars because I quite enjoyed the story and overall had a good time listening to it. Honoria is struggling to keep her siblings cared for and safe, which isn't easy when a powerful duke wants her late father's journals, journals that contain his experiments and perhaps even a cure. He'll stop at nothing to take back the journals and Honoria as well. Meanwhile, her brother is infected and getting worse by the day, and money is getting tighter and tighter. At a loss, she turns to the one man that might be able to keep them all safe though he's not exactly an innocent or safe man either. Blade is known as the Master of the Rookeries, the Devil of White Castle. He was born and raised in the streets, and now he runs those very streets. However, he's no longer human. Years ago, he was infected and is now a vampire. Hold that thought. More about vampires later, okay? He makes a deal with Honoria. He'll keep her and her siblings safe if she agrees to be one of his thralls, a person he drinks from. With no other choice and a strong attraction to Blade that she can't seem to withstand anymore, she agrees. But it's not smooth sailing for these two yet, as there's a rogue vampire killing in the area, the Duke is still after her and her journals, and Blade doesn't want to start anything with her for fear that he is dangerously close to turning rogue himself. Okay, so remember I said he's a vampire, kinda? This is where I'm still quite lost about the world building here. There's vampires, but they're monsters and must be killed outright. There's nothing left of their humanity they don't understand, um, you know, right from wrong. They don't have any control. They're just outright monsters that are killed. That is what, in this world, they always called a vampire. But then there's blue bloods, who are all apparently the rich... Um, society people that are infected, but not yet vampire monsters, though they do heal and need blood. Oh, and they don't have fangs. They cut people to drink the blood. And then there's Blade, and I assume others besides him, who are also infected and not yet vampire, but they're not a rich aristocrat. Blue blood, blue blood. I was just left with so many questions. Are all blue bloods of this world, as in society status blue bloods, are they all vampire blue bloods? Or just some of them are blue blood blue bloods? Is it by choice or is it passed on through genetics? Do they all turn into the vampire monsters eventually, or just some of them lose control and go rogue? Can any of them take sunlight? It seems like I heard a brief mention of sunlight once, but again, I'm still unsure on it all. How do they age? Do they age? Are they completely immortal? Do they just have a longer lifespan? I don't recall anyone talking about female vampires or blue bloods or whatever the fuck the ones who drink blood in this world are actually called. So can women not be turned at all? I just, I just have questions, okay? And I got no real answers. I'm intrigued by this world, don't get me wrong, but I just wanted some more information about these basic things. I'm not sure if it's just that I was confused by it or if it's just literally was not there in the book. Um, but I'm hoping that more of it is explained in future books. But honestly, this is the information that we needed in the first book. We've talked about before, though, with paranormal or urban fantasy, how the first book in the series can sometimes suffer from the how do you not info dump, but how do you build up the world? And I don't know, quite a bit of this, I think there was stuff explained, and then there was a lot of things, like I just said, that I still have no idea what 
the differences between a vampire and a blue blood and do they turn do they not like i'm just left with questions but confusion over this vampire but not exactly vampire world i really did enjoy this steampunk paranormal setting and i'm curious to read more about it the romance was pretty good they had chemistry and often some decent banter going on as well as to the sex there's one scene where she's writing him and he takes her hand raises it up to lick her fingers, and then pushes her fingers down for her to play with her clit while she's still riding him, and oh, fuck, I died. I died. That is all. Oh, one last thing. I did appreciate that in this world, feeding can turn one or both people on, and it's treated like just a natural reaction of the body, and it's not made gross or uncomfortable or anything. Even when it's a man feeding from another man, like Blade does to one of his soldier men at one point, and Honor just makes a nonchalant comment that Will's hips were rolling involuntarily during the feeding like it's no big deal. I mean, from looking at the rest of the series, it's all MF couples, so that's a bit disappointing. But hey, at least the feeding arousal isn't treated like, ew, no same-sex feeding, it's turning them on or some shit. So there's that, I suppose. Again, it's not perfect. I would like to see more than just straight couples in a series like this, um, in any series. But that's a whole other discussion about Romance Landia. But I guess I just appreciated that it wasn't treated like that was a no-no, because I know some paranormals that I've read where it's like, no, you only feed from the opposite sex, because otherwise that's just a taboo no-no. And here it's just like, you feed from whoever you need to feed from. If something is, someone's aroused from it, so be it. It doesn't really mean anything. Like, I just appreciated that it wasn't turned into something taboo and gross, so. I mentioned the narration at the beginning, so a quick note on the narration here. I liked her narration, except her voice for the hero. It was just wrong and kind of creeped me out. I mean, I didn't find it sexy, that's for sure. I get that the hero's accent was described as a mix between like a street accent and a highborn gentleman's accent, and I think that's what she was trying to do with her voice here, but it just didn't work for me. I'll still try the other books on audio too, because I didn't have problems with any of her other voices, so I'm hoping this was just a thing for Blade and Blade only, and I won't notice anything like that, you know, with other men or other heroes and future books. I guess I will let you know if I get, um, or rather, I will let you know when I get to those other audiobooks. Because my library actually had the next, I don't know, at least the next two um, audiobooks available, which is a surprise considering how much of my Overdrive's romance collection is always has a wait list a mile long. And I was tempted to just grab book two today, but I figured I'd wait and get a few others on my list that's already on my list um, taken care of and then come back to this series again. Because I will be back. I really did enjoy this, and I'm... I'm just curious to see what else is going on in this world. The next book is supposed to be Will, who is a werewolf, and um, Honoria's sister. So, yeah, I'm really damn intrigued about that. Speaking of series reading, do you binge read a series, or do you try to spread out the books? Next, I finished up another audiobook, While the Duke Was Sleeping, by Sophie Jordan, narrated by Carmen Rose. While I didn't outright hate anything about this one, I literally didn't care about the story or the characters at all, and that's even worse. So, final rating for it, two stars. 
Poppy is a flower shop girl trying to earn enough to keep her teenage sister, and herself obviously, taken care of. Poppy, by the way, is 20, which is about par, I think, for most historical heroines, give or take a year or two. The hero will obviously be, like, I think, closer to 30. I don't know if we ever get his exact age. Again, fairly common for historicals. Anyway, the flower shop she works at has one very famous repeat customer, the Duke of Ottenbury. In her daydreams, one day he will realize he loves her and sweep her off her feet. In reality, one day she manages to push him out of the way of a runaway carriage, saving his life, while also making him hit his head and sending him into a coma. But don't worry, the Duke isn't the hero for this story, which you probably figured out when you heard the title, since this is a play on the While You Were Sleeping movie, and we all know how that one turned out. So while the Duke is out of it, she tells a little white lie to his family. She's his fiancé. They welcome her with open arms, while the Duke's half-brother, Stroon, a Scottish bastard from his father's infidelities, would rather have her for his own, at least for a night. And despite her claim that she's in love with his comatose brother, she appears to be attracted to him as well. So here's the thing. I was bored throughout this entire book. I was easily zoning out because nothing was happening and it wasn't holding my attention. This only takes place within the span of maybe a week or two at most, so you would think it should be pretty fast-paced. It just drug on and nothing happened. Uh, I didn't care about the story or the characters, and I didn't see or believe the romance either. All that led to me giving this two stars. I didn't rage over anything, hence it's not a one star, but I also didn't care enough about any part of this book, hence it's not a three star. When I say the romance is MIA, I'm not joking. These two don't even talk beyond a word or two until nearly 50% in, and still there's no progress in their relationship, or lack thereof, after that. Then they fool around a few times, he takes her virginity, and suddenly they're in heavy insta-love with a few chapters left to wrap up the entire story, after first dealing with her lie about the Duke, who of course does wake up. When a romance novel goes from romance MIA to rushed and unsatisfying romance, there's just no saving it, let's be honest. So the sex was fairly hot, but because I never really connected to the couple, that meant that I was also a bit disconnected from the sex. But I can still appreciate the fact that he gives her a finger-bang orgasm in one scene and a little oral fun in another, and even their first full-on scene together brought a decent level of heat. So there's that. The narrator did a good job, and I enjoyed listening to her, just like I have with a few other historicals before. Uh, but even a good narrator wasn't enough to make me care about this book. You know, it just meant that I was able to listen to this and still find it somewhat entertaining in the, in the performance itself, but not the story. I really don't have anything more to say about this one, good or bad. It just was, and it gave me something to listen to while I was walking the pup and doing dishes, which is really the bare minimum that I expect from my audiobooks. So that's not saying much. Honestly, I kind of wish I had just grabbed the second Beck McMaster book, uh, like I mentioned in my last chat. But of course, by the time I got done with this one, that one's got a wait list again, so I should have learned. Um, instead, I grabbed this one, and all I can say is, thankfully, it was pretty quick. Now it's time to move on to another one, and hopefully it'll be better than this lackluster read. And finally, I finally finished up Outside the Lines by Anna Zabo. This one comes out on the 18th. 
It's really an MM romance featuring an open marriage and a new partner, but it's not exactly a true menage or, or triad romance. And it's dual first POV from the two men only. I have some mixed thoughts on some of this book, but overall I really enjoyed it and I'm giving it three and a half stars. So Ian is a miniature artist currently working on the set of a big paranormal TV show. He makes the set models that they use for filming and especially for like blowing things up and whatever. When his current set is ruined, he has a week to redo all the work. So he heads into the town's comic book shop, hoping they'll have some of the supplies he desperately needs. He finds supplies and even gets permission to do the work in the back room of the shop with a little bit of help from Simon. Simon is the owner of the comic book shop. Simon is also bi, married to a woman, and in a committed, open relationship. His wife, Lydia, is also in a similar business to all of this. She does some work for graphic art, um, not exactly graphic novels yet, um, or comic books or stuff like that, but she does kind of, I don't know, she works kind of adjacent to that, and she's hoping to write her own comic book and all that stuff. Um, she also loves doing amazing fan art pieces under a pseudonym all about the TV show Wolf's Landing. Anyway, the, the TV show that's like the entire thing for this this series. So Anna's writing is great, and I loved the fun innuendo lines. Those fun lines mostly show up in the early parts of the story. I didn't notice them so much in the later parts, but that's okay. This is part of a series from Riptide, which is what I was trying to say a minute ago, from various authors, but you can read it out of order. I have. I think this is only maybe the second or third book out of the entire thing, and this is like book 23, 22. It's a long series. I've only read a couple of them. No real reason for that. I mean, I am curious to go back and start from the beginning. Each book is from a different author. There's a couple authors that have multiple books. Uh, for example, Anna just has this one book from it, but I think L.A. Witt, I don't know, maybe did five or six within the series, and they are almost all of them M.M. I think there's one or two that are F.F. in the series. I don't know. It's it's an ongoing series. I know it's very popular, but like I said, you can jump in and out of the series without any problem because that's what I've done myself. Okay, now I'm questioning if this is from Riptide. I'm pretty sure it is, right? Guys, why am I horrible at actually doing all of my research before I sit down to record this for you guys? If I am wrong, I will correct it in the blog post. If I'm right, then yay! Good on my brain for once. So the sex here was slightly kinky and definitely hot, which again, I know that Anna does well, so that was not a surprise. When I say the kink is mild, there's a bit of a dominant vibe from Ian, uh, though it's not a true, like, dominant-submissive dynamic in any way, shape, or form. There's a bit of tying up, but again, uh, just beginner stuff, like they use some um, handcuffs at one time and, like, maybe some silk rope type stuff. Again, nothing too hardcore. And then there's a ball gag that's pulled out, except it's not a ball. It's a small dildo that goes between the lips. I have questions about this still. Like, how big was it? Because it was says that it was too small for anal play, but I mean, it's big enough to gag him, you know, make it so that if he tried to speak, it was like garbled words around it or whatever. So I'm kind of like, okay, so how big is this dick that's sitting in his mouth? I don't know. I, I have questions. I guess I could have tried Googling. I'm sure this is an actual sex toy that you can buy, but I didn't want to Google that. 
maybe another day. <laughs> um, but whatever, the two get off on that, so, you know, let them have their fun. You know, there's a blowjob in the alley, there's um, a little bit of when the tables are switched, and Simon, I don't want to say that he was exactly the dominant, but he did kind of take control, and he tied up Ian, although Ian is a total top and does not bottom. He's got his you know, preferences, his reasons why he doesn't like to do that, which is fine. And uh, Simon knows that and appreciate, or knows that and respects that rather. But Ian was okay with, you know, giving over control enough to be tied up. And then it was still, it was still Simon that was the one bottoming, but that was a hot scene. Their scenes were all hot together. Okay, so here's the thing. I had some issues with the poly triad relationship part of this. And I realized I might not be the one to really have a say in this, uh, or to say it properly, as I am obviously not poly, I'm not queer, and I'm not in an open relationship, have no desire to be. That's just me. Nothing wrong with those of you who do. Uh, but I found that part of the story so disappointing from what I was expecting. Maybe that's what it is. It's disappointing from what I was expecting. So I get that Ian was gay. Um, why do I keep saying Ian? I get that Ian was gay, and gay only, so he would never feel anything for Lydia. And I didn't expect to see Ian start fucking Lydia, uh, not at all, because that wouldn't have been true to who his character was. I didn't expect them to all start fucking each other. But I did want to see Simon's relationship with Lydia just as much as the relationship with Ian, because, hi, his relationship with her is important to his character. Um, just how falling in love with Ian is important to his character in this book as well. Instead, Lydia is treated like a cardboard cutout that's brought in as a prop for a scene, doesn't ever really contribute to the scene, and then she's gone again. I get that the focus of this book was written so that it's an M.M. romance telling the story of Ian and Simon, but in my opinion, she should have been a bigger part of the story, a bigger part of Simon's life, of their life, the three of them, period, if this poly relationship is going to work with Lydia and Ian romantically and platonically involved, while Simon is involved with each of them, you know, completely romantically and sexually. So I have to wonder if she was kept out of the story because of how so many MM readers, those who read only MM romance, that is, have very strong opinions about not having any pussy near their dick books. And I know that sounds horrible, like I'm reducing gender down to what a person's genitals are, which is not what I believe at all, but, well, some of those readers do. Regardless, my point is, those readers do not want to read about a woman, especially sexually, and it's why they don't read MF or FF. I mean, this goes back to that internalized misogyny that I keep talking about, so I'll just say it again. Unpack your own shit, people, okay? That's the only way this is going to change. I just... I wanted Lydia to be part of their story and not just treated like a vague background character, but she was never treated like anything more than that. And it made it feel like I didn't believe that this could be a working poly relationship in the end. Yes, they did become a little bit more like friends towards like the very end. I'm talking maybe a chapter or two left. But because there was nothing leading up to that and I never knew her in any way, shape or form, I didn't fully believe it. Like, I'm still here sitting here going, well, but I couldn't see uh, Simon's relationship with Lydia. How do I know that they are actually, uh, you know, in love and that they're committed to each other while they're both poly and open? And I didn't quite see the full relationship, not sexually, of course, but the platonic relationship between Ian and Lydia. So again, I'm like, I don't really know how that's going to 
work. Like, I get that this wasn't a triad in the sense of all three were fucking and happy, but it's still a triangle in a way, right? So I never felt like all the sides were equal. I felt like this was just focusing on Simon and Ian. And I just can't help but wonder if this book had been written not as an MM, not marketed as an MM, and not marketed towards an MM audience, you know, a census of through a queer press, I wonder if it would have been approached differently. I wonder if Lydia would have been brought in and, again, not that I wanted her to start fucking Ian, because the two were not compatible. He was has no interest in women. That would not have changed. But I wonder if it had been approached differently, um, if we would have saw her, if we would have saw her, especially her and her relationship with Simon, if we would have just known more about her. Instead, like I said, she's supposed to be part of this this relationship, but I think I knew more about some of the characters that were in the background that are, you know, I don't know, other workers on the set or something. I felt like I knew more about them than I ever knew about her. And I don't know, like I said, I just have mixed feelings, and maybe this is just me putting my own views on, you know, a poly relationship into this, and maybe there's others out there who are poly that's going, no, no, that's that's how it would work. That's their relationship is fine. I don't know. I just I just keep coming back to the fact that I feel like it ties into how MM readers really don't want women anywhere near their gay sexy times or bi sexy times. And I feel like that might have been the case here. I don't think that's what the author intended because I know she's spoken out about how some MM readers are that way. But maybe that's the way that the publisher wanted this book approached where Lydia isn't shown in here. I mean, there's one scene where she's watching while the two of them are fucking, but even then, she's just this vague outline of a person sitting on the couch or the chair or something behind them, and you get the vague detail that, you know, she's getting off while the two of them are getting off, but that's it, and it's just like it's treated like, no, she's not a sexual being because, ew, we can't have that in our MM book. I don't know. Like I said, you guys, this is a conversation that keeps going on in Romance Landia about how some MM readers are anti-woman for whatever reason or another. So maybe I'm just pulling too much of that into my experience with this book, but I just wanted more from the triad portion of the story. I wanted more from Lydia. I just, you know, whether this was an MM romance or not, I'm just tired of the women being treated like they're not an important character or treated like, you know, the only one that's important is the main one or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. But that was really my only issue with the book. So if I was going to rate it as just the between the relationship between um, Simon and Ian, you know, this one might have been more like a four-star read. But then when I thought about it in terms of this complicated, open, poly relationship part, then I was going, eh, I'm kind of disappointed. So maybe three, three and a half. So my final overall thing was three and a half stars. It was still a hot read. It was still a good read. It was still, I liked seeing this town again. And I liked seeing kind of something different as far as their jobs, you know, being a miniature set designer and a comic book owner, bookstore owner and her graphic art stuff. I liked seeing all of that. Like I said, really my only issue was just, I thought that the execution of the poly relationship was just kind of weak for me. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me pulling in stuff that I keep hearing in Romance Landia, where we're constantly talking about, you know, why is it that some readers 
hate women so much and don't want to go near them in their books, which is a whole other discussion. So I will stop beating that dead horse because I'm pretty sure that what started out as a nice laid out notes that I was following has now turned into me just rambling. So I think that means it's time for me to take a sip of coffee and regroup, end this and move on. This weekend, I'm reading A Hope Divided by Alyssa Cole. I'm still surprised that I was able to get this from my library so quickly, since it only just came out, what, a few weeks ago now? I liked book one, though not nearly as much as everyone else did, but that's okay, it happens. The hero from that book, An Extraordinary Union, uh, this is his younger brother's story. I'm going to be honest, it's a good thing my library has this series because $9.99 for an ebook is far too much for me, which we've discussed before, so I won't go off on that again, this time at least. After that, I think I need a holiday romance or two. I haven't read any this year, I don't think. I guess that Jill Shalvez one from last week, um, The Trouble with Mistletoe, but I mean, that one wasn't terribly Christmassy to me, but whatever. Say hello to my dog. Hey, I might still be a Scrooge in my real life, but I do enjoy escaping into a good holiday romance. Maybe I'll pick up The Christmas Cowboy Hero by Donna Grant. The only problem is it's a print book. Guys, I don't know if I remember how to read a print book. It has been way, way too long. I think my biggest problem with print books anymore is because I share so many quotes. Um, hello quote whore here. It's harder to share them from a print book, right? I've got to actually either like take a picture of the page and hope that you can actually read everything and I'm not all fuzzy, or I've got to like type it out into Twitter or into a document and then do a screenshot. Like it takes a lot more work than just going highlight, share to Twitter. And I'm lazy sometimes. So <laughs> we'll see how this goes reading a print book. I may or may not have a lot of quotes to share. Or maybe I'll start Mary Inkmas, like I mentioned doing last week. <sighs> decisions, decisions. Hell, I'll probably do both of them. You know, tis a season for all the holiday reads, right? I mean, I've got to hurry and get it in before it's no longer the holidays. Which brings me to a question. Do you read holiday romances outside of just the holiday season? Or are you a strictly, it's got to be winter weather or, you know, November through January or whatever you term it as the holiday season. Is that the only time you're going to read a holiday romance? I'm kind of curious. As to my audiobook, I'm actually in the middle of a three-part serial hitched by Kendall Ryan. I'm listening to the last of volume two right now. I'll talk about all three stories next week. I have some mixed feelings going on. There's going to be a bit of ranting. Okay, maybe a lot of ranting, come to think of it, but so far at least I don't hate everything about it, and I have been enjoying a lot of the story, um, despite some issues that I've got that I will be ranting about. Though I do also have some bitching to do about the narrator. Yeah, basically, you don't want to miss next week's episode, that's for sure. What about you? Tell me what you are reading this weekend. I want to know. I hope it's good, but if it's not, you know I'm always up for a good book rant as well. Also, don't forget my other questions for you. First, do you read a series like Binge Read It, or do you try to space out the books to enjoy them slowly? 
And two, when do you read holiday romances? Do you only read them during the holiday season or do you like to read them just any time of the year? I want to know. I hope you enjoyed this week's What You Reading Chat. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and fall in love with some fantastic books. Until next week, enjoy. TBQ.